As luck would have it, I too am going to speak of Samson, but for an entirely different reason. And after reading this story for years and years and getting a college degree or two, uh, I learned something for you today, Ryan. Thank you. Samson is one of those stories, I don't know if you've experienced this in your faith journey, Samson is one of those stories that gets a little whitewashed when we tell it to our kids. And so for me, growing up in church, Samson was my hero. I mean, you want to talk about a little boy who wants to grow up to be a man, I mean, Samson is a man's man. His hair is a little, yeah, but well, we'll forgive him for that, you know? I mean, dude, this guy was strong. He beats bears down with his bare hands. He rips a lion in half. And then to add insult and injury, he goes back and eats the honey, you know, that had grown in this lion's cage. That's a nice image, isn't it? Uh, we make it look better in the cartoons, don't worry. Um, I mean, he drags the huge city gates up to the top of the hill just to spite the people that tried to bind him. That's a guy to admire. Until you read the story and actually read the story. And you learn that Samson wasn't actually anybody that I want to emulate in any way, shape, or form. He's disrespectful to his parents. He's disrespectful to his God. He is a womanizer and a philanderer. He is violent, violent, violent. This is not a guy I want to meet on any street at any time of the day or night. It is a downright dirty kind of story. As it turns out, are many of the stories in the book of Judges when you actually sit down to read them. And so I had this profound experience, or maybe not so profound, of growing up, reading scripture one way as a kid, and hearing the stories again as an adult, and realizing that they're not as neat and tidy as we like them to be. And I want to submit to you that the book of Esther, it's kind of like that. It's not as neat and tidy as we like it to be. That's risky business to start a sermon with, don't you think? Deserves a little prayer. <laughs> I invite you to, to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you not because we are worthy, but because you are. Not because we deserve it, but because we're grateful. We're grateful for what you have done in the past and what you continue to do in our lives and what you will do in the future. And so we ask you to give us an extra measure of grace this morning as we tread again into your holy word to read stories of a people that have long since perished, that we might find strength and wisdom and insight in how we might be faithful to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's fair to say that wisdom is not something that's very much in vogue today. Would you agree with me? We're more interested in sass and sound bites. Okay? As long as we're on the same page, I can keep moving forward. Wisdom's not really a category that seems to be in vogue. But nevertheless, we have some deeply rooted and widely pervasive bits of conventional wisdom that really impacts the way that we live day to day. You don't have to look very far to dig up some of the things that are most valuable to us as people. 
Walk onto any construction site and you'll be greeted with what kind of sign? Wear your PPE. Safety, safety, safety. Personal protective equipment. If you don't have a hard hat, steel-toed boots, get out. You don't belong here. Safety, safety, safety. I remember reading through my uh, emails. I, don't, I couldn't find it this morning. I was looking for it. I couldn't find it. But it was one of those, oh, Sonny, let me tell you, uh, kind of emails. So I'll finish it in that voice. When I was a kid, we drove around in cars and had no seatbelts, smoked 12 packs of cigarettes a day, and we made it out just fine. Poking a little bit of fun at our safety culture, okay, which sometimes gets a little out of hand. I'm not advocating. Somebody took away from the first service that I said you could ride without a seatbelt. Let me be, nope. <laughs> did not say that. Also did not say smoking's a good idea. I'm just reflecting what was in the email. But it gets a little absurd, doesn't it? I've noticed what's happened to some of our kids' parks. They are boring. <laughs> they don't want to put anything that's got any sort of height on it because the kids might fall and break their neck. Yeah, they might. You don't want to put anything that spins because they might get launched. I've got a great picture of my daughter at 90 degrees going this way off one such toy that still exists. And uh, she did get hurt. And uh, she's actually still with us today. So it turns out it wasn't as big of a safety concern as we first thought. And they had a blast. But our parks are an interesting microcosm of this. And if the city can't come up with a way to, like, idiot-proof them so that you can't possibly get hurt while maybe trying to have fun, they just take them out. It gets even more absurd. You know when you order that hot chocolate from McDonald's? What do you think the temperature might be? Hot? Yeah? Why do they write that on your cup and on the lid on all sides of it? Because there was a lawsuit that somebody somehow won for scalding themselves with a hot McDonald's beverage. Isn't that ridiculous? It's crazy. This probably, uh, that might be one of those preacher stories. I don't know, but it works. I mean, we're trying to idiot-proof society so that we don't have to take any risks that will possibly cause us any harm. Listen to an interesting uh, episode of Ideas on uh, CBC. It's a fascinating, very far-flung, wide-ranging kind of program. And this one had to do with uh, risk aversion and risk mitigation, or risk tolerance, and all sorts of things risk-related. What I found really interesting about it is um, there had been an earthquake over in Europe, and they were trying to pinpoint who to blame. Whose fault was it? And there was a lot of people that were trying to say, hey, those folks uh, who were supposed to tell us the earthquake, earthquake was coming, they're to blame. The people who said, ah, no, you got another hour. You don't have to leave. They're to blame. It's their fault that the earthquake wiped out uh, all these buildings, did damage to these people. I was fascinated to listen to an expert in the field basically say, there are some things we can't possibly predict. Earthquakes happen to be one of them that are notoriously difficult to know when they're coming and when they're going to strike. And the long and the short of it was, over the course of an hour or a couple hours of this program, was with all of our ingenuity, we still can't control the future. We can't plan for every inevitability. And so in the course of this, one of the most interesting things that kind of came out from it was a, was a mom preparing in Vancouver to send her kid back to school. And Vancouver, unlike us, uh, braces itself for earthquakes. They do earthquake drills. I remember it being profoundly weird when I came to uh, Calgary and we didn't do earthquake drills. I'm like, what? 
what's this fire drill you're talking about? We've got an ocean, don't we? No, just kidding. Uh, but earthquakes you prepare for. And the reality is that they, mom or dad or hopefully both would put together a little kit with a few things in it, one of which was a letter to their child that basically said, hey, if you're reading this, it's going to be okay. I'm on my way. I'll see you soon. Which may or may not be true in any way, shape, or form if an earthquake actually struck. Because we recognize that there's some things that we just can't be completely sure about. And so as we think about our safety culture and some of the boundaries that we've started to put in place, we even bump up against those areas where it starts to not make sense anymore. Like predicting an earthquake. We don't know. So we'll do our best, but we'll see. Outliers like the general conventional wisdom would probably say, be nice and you'll get ahead. But sometimes you're nice and the other person is still really mean to you. And sometimes you're nice and you don't get ahead. Uh, Conventional wisdom would say, wear your seatbelt. But when I'm at Gary Zorn's farm, and he invites me to go for a little ride in old blue down the lane that's got no doors on it, no seatbelts, yeah, let's go for a ride. When there's a five-car pileup on the Deerfoot and people are bleeding to death and being crushed and suffocated because of the wreckage, do you think we shouldn't get our emergency vehicles to abide by that speed limit? Absolutely not. We make way for them, don't we? I think about my brother and a friend of his who, when Bowness was flooded, uh, disregarded <laughs> police instructions to get out because they had to keep saving a few more things from the basement. And the cops would chase him out, and they'd go down the street, and they'd come back down the back alley and back inside and move some more things. Glad he's a bit of a rebel that way. Sometimes circumstances and the conventional wisdom just don't line up. Remember my first, first semester at Bible college, played a really interesting game. I can't for the life of me remember what the name it is uh, of it was, so for the sake of this argument, we'll call it persecuted missionaries. And the whole gist of the game was uh, there's going to be a few people who are the persecutors and there's going to be the folks that are the missionaries and the folks who are the missionaries had certain tasks set out to them. We played it at nighttime, so it was dark and we're out at you know the retreat center or whatever and there's forest all around. And we had to gather in a certain group, so you had to get in a group of at least eight and pray. You had to get together in a group of this big and uh, you know read this scripture out loud and you had to get in this group and you had to sing. And what would happen is, uh, inevitably, because I'm horrible at those games, along with capture the flag and paintball and anything else that involves getting away from the people that are trying to catch you, I was in jail. And so I'm sitting there in jail, you know, kind of twiddling my thumbs, and I'm singing. And the guard turns to me, says, shut your mouth. I'm like, I think I'll keep singing. Shut your mouth or I will kill you. I know he's not really going to do that. So I start saying, bang! And now I'm dead. So I crossed my legs, folded my arms. I thought for a few moments about the choice I'd just made. To sing a hymn that cost me my life. And now, in the context of this game, no more mission work to be done. At least not for me. 
sometimes in a world of ISIS, conventional wisdom doesn't hold up in the same kind of way. Conventional wisdom works just fine when life is normal. But conventional wisdom stops being adequate when the rules or the circumstances change. And that's where we intersect the book of Esther. Esther paints a world where the rules have changed. God's people are no longer living in the promised land. Their very existence is now threatened. The rules have changed. And conventional wisdom will no longer suffice. Esther's actually a really tough book to kind of locate and figure out uh, how to put it all together. We know the geography, Persia. We know the king, Xerxes, and we know the status, exiled. We know all those things, but we have a real hard time figuring out the genre of Esther. What exactly is Esther the book supposed to do? Because it's a book and it's a story that's kind of like the book of Daniel that we looked at a few weeks ago. It's about Jews in foreign courts, in very high positions of power. It's kind of like the book of Daniel. It's a book and it's a story that's kind of like the sayings about wise rulers and wise living in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's a book and it's a story that kind of echoes the stories of Joseph and Ruth. But it's also a story and a book that doesn't quite fit together the way we think it ought. On the one hand, it's a book about the Jews in exile. Their annihilation and their salvation and the instituting of a religious festival called Purim. If you just go to the end of the book and read chapters 9 and 10... There's these long edicts from Mordecai and from Esther that are instituting why this book was basically written, instituting the festival of Purim. Hey, we avoided destruction today and we're going to celebrate it by feasting. And you have these little explanatory notes that say, and this is why in the rural areas they celebrate it a day later and in the cities they celebrate a day earlier. That's a, okay, that's an explanatory kind of note. It, it explains where this festival came from. But it's a book about God's people where God's not mentioned even once. Weird. So on the other hand, it's a lighthearted comedy with a seriously satirical underbelly. Just got to go to chapter 5 and 6 of the book to get a picture of this. Here is Haman, the antagonist. He has just gone to dinner with Queen Esther and King Xerxes, and he is all full of himself. I mean, he is trotting around. He's like, I am all that. And then some, let me tell you, my wife and my family, I'm so wealthy. I've got so many kids. You guys have no idea. There were three people invited to the party. Me, oh, sorry, not three, two invited to the party. Me and the king. And he wasn't the most handsome. This is Haman. It's hilarious. So Haman leaves this party, but the king is restless. And here's the king tossing and turning in bed and saying, I can't sleep, bring me something to read. Come, go find something and read it to me. And they start reading and just happen upon a story about a certain Mordecai who just happened to save the king's life by revealing a treasonous plot. And the king says, hey, uh, is there any chance that we uh, did anything for him? Well, no, your highness, we didn't. You need to go find whoever's in the court right now and send them in to me. Guess who's in the court? It's hilarious. Haman. Haman is in the court. Haman and Mordecai don't like each other at all. 
And so here's Haman on the way back in to see the king. The king says, Haman, what would you do for somebody the king wants to honor? And Haman says, this is, God, this is totally me. I'm going for the nines. So Haman says, I, if I were you, I would give them a king's royal robe. I would find a horse that the king has ridden with the king's royal signet on it. And I would have one of your noblest princes lead around that person, proclaiming this is what the king does for the people for whom he finds favor. The king says, that's a good idea, Haman. Go do that for Mordecai. Is that funny? Just me? I think that's hilarious. I mean, you couldn't have planned it better. Just the series of events is comedic. Although, there's that other side where thousands of people die. So it's kind of an interesting book. And on the other, other hand, it's wisdom literature. It shows us in kind of the black and white how wisdom triumphs over foolishness. You don't have to look far to find the first fool. It's the king. He's a buffoon. He's an ex- uh, excessively excessive in his lavish lavishness. The front end of the story is a deadly combination of administrative incompetence and dangerous power. He is the king, after all. For 180 days, he opens wide the floodgates of his beneficence and says, everybody gets to drink from their own gold goblet. Not one of them is the same. They're all handcrafted. They can have whatever they want. And for three, six months, rather, for six months, 180 days, people in the kingdom indulge. And in the middle of this, he says, bring me my queen. Vashti, not Esther at the time. Bring me my queen. Put on your crown so that I may show off my trophy wife. And she doesn't show up. And he gets angry. Like, real angry. Like, get out of my sight. You can't be queen anymore. And at some point, when he calms down just a little bit, his advisors come to him and say, we should probably do something about that. And he says, great, let's do something about that. And they suggest to him, hey, maybe, maybe what we should do is punish every single woman in the whole kingdom. What do you think? We need to write an edict that says no woman can disobey her husband. None of them. Oh, okay, that sounds good. Yeah, dude, let's do that. This is our king. And compared to the wisdom literature that says only foolish kings act lazily and as a lackey to their advisors... The king comes out on top. What's, I think, most bothersome is it's not even the king that suffers for it. It's the people. And it's the land. Wisdom literature says kings don't get out of control. They don't let their emotions rule the day. And here is the king raging. The wisdom literature says drunkenness and gluttony are traits to be avoided. But here's the king in his 180-day party. The king is the fool. But there's Haman. Haman the adversary. He's haughty and he is boastful. He is self-centered. He is pompous. Haman is a braggart. He's a braggart who brags about his wealth and about how many children he has and the favor that he's found in the kingly court. Proverbs warns against boasting because no one knows what the future is going to bring, least of all Haman. 
Proverbs says that a man's pride will bring him low. That it will humiliate him. Has that ever played out in Haman's life? King, you should do all these great things. And now he has to do it for somebody else. And goes home with his tail between his legs. Haman doesn't think much before he speaks, although someone who is wise certainly would. So we've got a couple fools in the story, but we certainly have a couple that are wise, don't we? There's Mordecai. Mordecai, unlike Haman, proves himself wise in that he knows when to speak. For example, when he finds out there's a plot afoot to take the king's life. Good idea to speak up. But he also knows when to be silent. He tells Esther not to reveal her nationality. Like a wise person, Mordecai is able to be persuasive in his speech when called upon. As shown when he tells Esther, just because you think you're the queen doesn't mean you get out of this alive. That's pretty potent. Well done, Mordecai. In Proverbs 24, it explains that knowledge is power. And that victory comes from strategizing and planning. Which is clearly evidence in Mordecai's life when he strategizes and plans on how they're going to save the Jews after this other edict has already been sent out. He is a man who comes off as looking pretty wise. And what about Esther? Esther is obedient to Mordecai's teaching. Wisdom often says you would be wise to heed the advice of your elders. Mordecai's teaching, Mordecai says, keep your ethnicity a secret, and she does. Mordecai says, go to the king, and she does. Not only that, Esther heeds Hegai's advice. She comes off as pretty wise. She's faithful to her family, as a wise person would be. Observant when Mordecai is mourning and sending him clothes and finding out what's wrong with him. She too, like Mordecai, knows when to speak and when to stay silent. She is secretive about her ethnicity, yes. She waits until the second banquet to make her request, yes. But she also reveals her ethnicity at just the right time. And then, interestingly enough, when the king storms back into the room and finds Haman at her feet begging for mercy, she keeps quiet and lets the king think what he wants to think. She's both silent and full of words, according to wisdom. On the other other, other hand, the reality of the new land is more complex than just black and white will allow. Mordecai, for example, is not as wise as he first appears. He does not shun praise when it's offered to him as somebody who is wise would. Remember, pride comes before a fall. He doesn't tell Haman, no, no, Haman, I don't need any thanks for that. Like someone who is wise might, he takes it all in just driving that screwdriver a little bit deeper into Haman. Mordecai is no fool. He incites Haman to genocide, quite frankly. Have you ever thought about the fact that if it weren't for Mordecai, the whole book of Esther wouldn't have existed? Think about it. If Mordecai would have just bowed to Haman, there would have been no problem. 
Now, there's a few different ways we can understand this, and I understand I'm speaking into the silence of Scripture here, but there's a few ways I think we can understand it, since Esther doesn't give us any motivations. I get the sense that Mordecai and Haman are like mortal enemies. So certainly, on the one hand, Mordecai may have refused to bow for religious, pious reasons. I will not bow to anyone but God. But... It is interesting to note that he is also very close to the powers that be, at least in the sense that he's in the royal courts. He gets to hang out where things are happening. And you don't get there without playing by the political rules of the day. So he'd probably accommodated somewhere along the way, not for Haman. Maybe Mordecai refused to bow because he just didn't like Haman. Maybe Haman keyed his car one day and he's like, that's it, not bound to you. Maybe he didn't like the way Haman dressed. That is so last year. Whatever, maybe he just didn't like Haman. Doesn't sound like a wise person, does it? Let your emotions rule the day. Or maybe Mordecai was just deep down a racist. You see, he's an Israelite. And Haman's an Agagite. A descendant of the Amalekites. Long, long history of enmity there. And so Haman doesn't deserve this. I will not bow to the enemy. Which again contravenes the wisdom of not speaking badly of the rulers or the powerful people around you because something bad might happen like genocide. And so Mordecai, although he seems wise at first, comes off a little more tainted. Even our hero Esther doesn't act consistently with what we might consider wise living. Even Esther. She does not opt for humility and decorum when it comes to the beauty contest, one which she ultimately wins. And one which ultimately results in a night with the king. Come on. You know what a night with the king means. And after the night with the king, you either go to the concubinage or you become queen. She wins. It's interesting to me. She acts in very risky ways, which again, in terms of wisdom literature, doesn't seem to fit. Wisdom says be cautious. Be cautious, especially in the court of the king. Don't provoke the king to anger. And yet she goes in unannounced. She acts boldly to concoct this scheme of banquets through which to reveal Haman's plot and reverse the fortunes of her people. At any point along the way, she could have been slaughtered just because the king didn't see her. Here you are in the court and king doesn't notice. You're dead. That's the gist I get from the story. That's pretty bold if you ask me. And not only that, At these banquets, she doesn't hold her tongue and is not reluctant to ask for even more assistance once their fortunes were reversed, which is to say that after the first two banquets, there's another ask that she makes to the king. It says, hey, can we defend ourselves for a day longer? That's not wisdom. Wisdom said, man, you were lucky to get this far without getting your head chopped off. Quit while you're ahead. But she doesn't. She acts boldly. And so here, even Esther doesn't act as a completely wise person, but acts boldly to save her people. 
in exile where the rules have changed and God's people are threatened to be wiped from existence, conventional wisdom no longer seems sufficient. We, the people of God, are in exile. We, the people of God, live in exile. We are not yet home, living in a broken and breaking world, losing a battle with popular culture and values, and we are in danger of being gobbled up and swept away in the current. And conventional wisdom no longer seems sufficient. So what do we learn from Esther? I think the first thing we learn is that pleasing oneself is dangerous. Pleasing oneself is downright dangerous. Look at what happens when the king indulges in all his excessive displays of wealth and grandeur. He demands that the queen show up for his pleasure. And when the queen refuses, the king, like a two-year-old, stomps off and says, I will not be denied, deposes her. And guess who pays the price for all that? Every woman in the whole land of Persia. Did you notice that the king doesn't say, hey, go post signs, we're going to do some democratic recruiting of the most beautiful women in the land to see who's going to be queen next it's not the way it works with monarchs go get them and so because the king is displeased the people pay for it have you noticed that when one person's pleasure is not fulfilled a whole host of people suffer like Haman's pleasure of being recognized as a noble and one that the king loves and adores and thinks is all special. When Mordecai refuses that, Haman gets all insulted. And what's the result? All the Jews are going to be wiped out. Pleasing oneself is dangerous. Even the king, there's this really interesting phrase. When the king says, do what is pleasing in your own eyes, he says it two times. He says it once at the beginning to Haman, when Haman says, hey, there's these people that disrespect you. And the king's like, yeah, yeah, go make a law about that. He says, do what is pleasing in your own eyes. And then again later, when he says it to Esther, here's my signet ring, you go make a law to fix that. Do what's pleasing in your own eyes. Both of them lead to bloodshed and slaughter. When we're the center of our universes, people get hurt. Happens pretty overtly in the story of Esther, but it happens in small ways. Like certain nations that will go unnamed in the world, consuming a disproportionate amount of the energy produced while producing a disproportionate amount of the waste and the damage inflicted on the world. When we're the center of our universes, it's dangerous and people get hurt. Secondly, grace. (laughs) You were wondering if there was going to be grace, weren't you? There's grace. Grace is about God rescuing people who need rescuing. 
not those who earn it or deserve it or merit it. Esther and Mordecai are shown to be non-practicing Jews who don't pray, who don't read scripture, who don't observe the religious festivals in the book of Esther. This is how they come across. They come across as non-practicing Jews. While Israel is forced to divorce their non-Israelite wives in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, over here we have Esther marrying a heathen king. While Daniel is over here refusing to eat the lavish food of the courts, over here we have Esther whining and dining a heathen king. Well, we have a people over here in the middle of the land just trying to survive and get by. Over here we have Mordecai who comes across as an ethnic bigot and a racist who intentionally provokes the near genocide of his people. It's, it's a really weird kind of story, isn't it? And the, I, I say all that just to say they don't deserve to be saved. But I think God does it anyway. Because grace is not about if we deserve it. Grace is about Saving the people that need to be saved. It's about rescuing the people that need to be rescued. God saves people because they need saving, not because they're good, not because they practice the right religious ceremonies. God blesses people because he is a generous and blessing God. It's at the very core of who God is. And if we can't see that in Esther, I don't know where we're going to see that. And finally, responsibility. Something to be said here about the responsibility of a kingdom citizen. Which is to say they are to wield where they are and what they have for the sake of the broken world for whom God broke. These are the only two lines I'm going to read for you from all of Esther today. Because I think they're that poignant and hit that close to home. In chapter 4, when Mordecai is making his desperate plea to Esther to say, do something about this. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to a royal position For such a time as this. Who knows? We live in a nation and in a part of the world where a lot of us are born on third base. And we need to be super careful not to start thinking we hit a triple to get there. There are so many things that go into you being where you are that have nothing to do with you. The variables are so complex. It's not that one person was hardworking and the other wasn't. It's that one person was lucky and the other wasn't. And so as we sit in a very privileged position in the middle of our world, We need to hear this lesson from Esther that it is our responsibility as a kingdom citizen to wield where we are and what we have for the sake of the broken world that God broke for. The book of Esther invites us into a world that is not cut and dried and it's not a neat tidy package devoid of humanity 
But in the middle of all that, we can still walk away knowing that to please ourselves is dangerous. The grace is about God rescuing the people who need to be rescued. But our responsibility as kingdom people is to wield where we are, what we have for the sake of the broken world that God broke for. May you respond to that question in a way befitting the response of Esther to that question. I hope it spurs a whole host of questions around what it means to be a Christian mechanic and a Christian teacher and a Christian lawyer and doctor and executive and ditch digger. Because that is what God has given us and we're called to wield that for the sake of the broken world for which God broke. Let's pray. Uh, Father, the, the world of Esther is a long way from where we are. And sometimes it's hard to make the leap to where we are and what you're calling us to. But I pray that you would invigorate your people, that you invigorate us here today with a creative, imaginative spark to connect where we are and what you're doing, that we can join you in the middle of that and your redeeming work in this world. We thank you for your grace that's brought us this far and that'll carry us home. In Jesus we pray. So the elders have asked John Coughlin as the head of the operations committee to make a brief announcement. Um, before, but before he does, I'd like to just put in a plug for that, uh, for that group of men and women. Um, these people put in countless hours, like literally hundreds of hours in the last year. It seems like any time I come to the building, these people are here doing something. Uh, they take very seriously the, uh, the responsibility that's given to them, and they, they earnestly consider what can be done to enhance whatever happens in this building. So I just want to thank uh, the members of that committee, John Coughlin, Del Ason, Rebecca Hammond, Jack Mooney, Cully Carter, and Bud Ashby. Uh, thanks to all of these guys for the incredible work that you do in your heart for serving God. John? Okay, thank you very much. So the Calvary Church of Christ is an autonomous congregation, meaning we are self-supporting, a self-supporting standalone group that exists to serve God and people. Christ is the head, we are the body. The elders, staff, ministry leaders, and all of you members are here to complete the work that he has laid out for us. So Alberta's in an economic downturn, and we in Calgary are feeling its effects. The Operations Committee wants to give you a snapshot of our current financial situation. We have reviewed our year-to-date contribution numbers and projected them forward to year-end. Okay, so there's our, uh, our budgeted $520,000, and with current giving, we are at $414,000 of revenue, so this will leave us, by year-end, 
$106,000 short of budget. Now, fortunately, during better times, we had set aside funds for a building addition. From this fund, we paid for recent building renovations and to assist the elders with their decision to hire another staff member, we are planning to use money from this fund to cover half of the new minister's salary for a period of three years. So the purpose of this communication is twofold. Firstly, we want you to be aware that our giving is down. And secondly, next Sunday, December the 6th, in addition to our regular collection, we will take a second collection to help reduce the shortfall that will be carried into 2016. God calls his people to give. It's a spiritual act of worship. Please give prayerful consideration as to how you will participate in this opportunity next Sunday. If you attend here and don't contribute financially, please start. If you made a plan to give and have fallen short over the year, please try to make it up. And for the remainder, if God has enabled you to give more, then please do so. Thank you. So it's, it's been a tough year in some ways, hasn't it? But it's also been an amazing year. It's encouraging to me to look around and see God's kingdom work being done all around us, whether it's through the lunches that are made for uh, the kids here, the knitting, the Friendspeak program, our life groups and the things that happen there, the missions that we support throughout the world. It's incredible work, and it's supported by the generous contributions that you've given. And by God's grace, uh, we'll do even more next year. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Father, you are the, the Father who is, who is generous, who gives us so many things, who blesses us far beyond anything we can hope or imagine. Father, we ask that you encourage in us uh, hearts that are courageous, hearts that are generous, hearts that are compassionate as we look at the world around us. Father, please prepare us to do the great works that you have uh, created in advance for us to do, to bring glory and honor to your name. This we pray through the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.